Good morning, everybody. Today we are completing our teaching series that we've been in here for uh, several weeks that's uh, entitled Formed. Um, we've used this as what we've said as kind of a GPS system for our church, both telling us where we're going, but hopefully also pointing out how we're going to get where we believe God's calling us to go and to move. The scripture passage that has been leading us is from Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 12, and we're going to bring it up here on the screen today and read one last time this passage and what it has to say to us. Now during those days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would be with us this day and speak to all of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we've been trying to do in this series is to look at this passage and to say that there's very intentional actions, behavior that we see Jesus engaging in in this passage. It takes him through his day and that these behaviors and these patterns are not unique to this one day. That this is how Jesus lives his life and we see him throughout the gospels doing the same things again and again and again. We said that where he begins the day is where is different than how many of us begin our day. He begins his day in prayer. Begins his day on a mountaintop, praying for God to give him leading and direction and guidance. We've talked about how is it that we move from a prayer life that's more like a Santa Claus list of this is what I want, this is what my kids want, this is what we need, and this is what my neighbors need, and this is what we need in Houston, and this is what we need in Florida, which is all valid, to what is probably a more mature prayer life where we're also speaking to God, but also listening to God. Being led by God, being prompted by God, not just talking at God. We've asked ourselves, how is it that we experience that kind of prayer life? And we've called that behavior solitude. How do we practice solitude as a daily part of all of our lives? So that we too have ways that are unique to us. And, and one person's way of practicing solitude might be really different from someone else's, might be really different from mine. It's not about learning a formula. It's not about learning a form so much. It's experimenting and learning. How is it that we connect with God and as Henry Nouwen writes, that we too place ourselves like Jesus where we hear God whispering to us all the time that we are his beloved. This is so important because it is the only true place where meaning and identity and worth can be found for people. You see, if we don't find it from God, we're going to have to find that from somewhere else, either from our jobs or our careers or our resumes or a lifetime achievement award or uh, through relationships and looking to people to make us feel important and to make us feel validated and to make us feel worth something. And all of that can be there one moment and it can be gone the next. The only place that we find a lasting sense of our worth in the eyes of God comes from God himself. 
And so how do all of us find those places where we hear and are assured of God's love for us in our life? We're going to have different opportunities that we've encouraged you to look at doing with that. We're going to have opportunities, uh, as we talked about in in December, we're going to try something really different uh, at Covenant. We're going to do a half-day silent retreat that we're just going to invite people on just to try something out, see what that connection point might look like for you. And we encourage you in this practice of solitude. We saw, though, that Jesus doesn't just stay on the mountaintop having this prayer time with God, but that then the Spirit of God leads him off the mountain to engage with the crowd, with the people that are there. It says on a level place he gathers. And out of that crowd, he calls 12 people. And we talked about this last Sunday. The 12 apostles, the 12 disciples that are named here that Jesus for the next few years is going to be doing daily life with, or as Bonhoeffer writes, he's going to do life together with them. And it's not just that there's people in his life, but that these are very real people that he is intentionally building community with. And we said that not only do we need the practice of solitude, but we need the practice of community, all of us, places where we belong. And that is not about how many people are in our lives, right? It's not about if you post something on Facebook, how many likes do you get, or on Instagram, how many comments do you get? That is stuff that just is, it, it, that makes you feel validated for 30 seconds and then is gone. Rather, this is about saying, who are the people that God has sent into your life? That's what an apostle is, one that is sent. So who are the people that God has sent to you? And the way you know that is, who are the people that really know you and know your needs, know your burdens, know what you carry in with you? Who knows how to pray for you? And they love you and shower you with grace and keep pointing you towards Jesus. It's not about people who just know facts about your life or that you go to concerts with or that you watch games with, as nice as that is. It's about who journeys with us in our needs and keeps pointing us to Jesus. So number one, we need solitude. Number two, we need this practice of community. And finally, in what we're talking about today, is we see that the third pattern in Jesus is that he moves out into the crowd with his disciples. And he prays, and there is healing And there are unclean spirits that are driven out, and the kingdom of God is proclaimed. We see, if you read forward in Luke chapter 9, where the disciples are first sent out, that's exactly what he calls them to do again. He says in Luke chapter 9, he gives them power and authority to go out, to cast out unclean spirits, to heal, and to proclaim the kingdom of God. This is a theme that comes up again and again and again. And we can extrapolate from that 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 is our call as well. Not just to be in solitude, not just to have community, but that we are called to be agents of healing, of reconciliation, of repairing, of mending where there is brokenness around us, that we are sent out for that purpose, what we here are calling service. Behaviors of solitude, community, and service are what we're talking about. And we've said that you don't get to cherry pick these. You don't get to kind of sit there and go, well, I'm sort of an extrovert, so I like community, so I can do that one, and I can sign up for some service projects. Solitude thing's not really for me. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work like they they graduate in importance. It's not when you figure solitude out, then you can go into community, and once you get that, then you go into the really cool thing of service. It doesn't work that way. We've said it works like a three-legged stool. You can be sitting on that stool, and no matter how strong two of those legs are, if you pull one of those legs away, the stool collapses. You can't just choose which of these you like and which of them you don't. These are the patterns of Jesus' life that must become the patterns of ours if we are to be formed. And this last part is critically important. We don't do this because it's the rule. 
We don't do this because we say Jesus did it and the Bible says do it. And so you better be doing it as well. Solitude community service. We're going to get legalistic about this. We're going to want to see the check marks in your life and how you're doing these things because we want to make sure that all the religious rules are being followed and that your to-do list isn't being taken up by the evils of the world, but that you're being taken up by the holy things of God that have meaning because we tell you it has meaning. So you better be doing it because it's got so much meaning. The church often does that. The reason we want to be imitators of Jesus is because as Christians, what we believe is that in all of human history, in every corner of the world for thousands of years, in every culture, in every tradition, in every human life, that Jesus of Nazareth was more alive and more full of abundant life than anyone else that has ever walked this earth. That when Jesus says to us, I have come that you might have life and life abundance, that he was the embodiment of that, that he was the embodiment of a life of passion, that he was an embodiment of a life of purpose, that he was an embodiment of a life of meaning, that he was the embodiment of a life of significance. So we don't imitate Jesus here to follow rules. We do it to be imitators of the author of life. We do it so that we can come alive and live as well. This is an invitation to having our lives swallowed up by greater life. And so we ask ourselves, where are these behaviors, these patterns for every single one of us? And today we're talking about service. Now, one of the things that's important is that we start and continue to uh, what we've done in this series, trying to marry and to talk about the, um, the convergence of these lessons and having life, not just as religious rules, but that science backs it up. And this is true when it comes to a call to service and living as well. I don't know if any of you saw recently the New York Times Magazine just published an article talking about people and doing a study of people who give generously with their lives. Give of their money, give of their talent, give of their time and volunteering it away wherever they saw need. And the only thing they were studying was, is there a relationship between people feeling happy in their life with a sense of generosity? Are the two of those connected? They actually wrote the article by saying, we've always heard it's better to give to receive than to receive. Is that true? Or is that just something our parents taught us to try to convince us that we should be givers, right? Like, is that real? And what they found was that the answer is yes. That people who seek to give and to be generous are more happy and more fulfilled than people who just have carefully arranged lives of having everything the way I want it. And that's important to name because there's sort of this narrative, this belief that the reason I'm not happy is because I don't have enough of my life the way I want it. If I could just be in charge of the remote control, if I could just be the one to decide what we're eating for dinner tonight, if I could just be the one who decides what movie we're going to watch this weekend, if I could just have a little time for myself without people going, daddy, 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 if I could just have a little bit less of people asking me for money or asking me for my time or asking me to volunteer, but if I could just have life a little more the way I want it, then I would be happy and science is going, actually, that's not true. That's actually not true. It's why people who win the lottery keep going into bankruptcy. Because it's like, well, maybe if I just get a little more, maybe if I, it's like, you're never going to be happy. It's not how it works. We are not meant to find happiness when life is just carefully arranged the way we want it. What we realize is you can have everything you want and your world will be small and lacking in meaning. 
We don't find meaning as the center of the universe, as nice as that sounds. You and I were created to become part of a larger story, to be swept up in the story that God is writing. And God is a God who meets the needs of people. It's dangerous for us to start thinking that we're the point. We always have to start realizing, no, there's a bigger point. We're called to serve a bigger point. We're called to serve the needs of something larger than ourselves. And so this spirit of service has to be something that we take seriously. We have to realize that as a church. That's in some ways maybe where we wouldn't need to start today. Is saying, is that something that's true of us? Because it's not just that individuals say, if I could just have more of what I want, I'd be happy. Churches can do the same thing. Churches could start sitting there going, it's like, you know, if we could just have more of this and more of this and more of this, then things would be better. And Covenant has tried in very, very, very imperfect ways to seek to remember something. To remember that the only value that the church has is when it's not pointing to itself. The only value that the church has is when it's pointing to something larger than itself. That's the only value we have. That, that we are not the big idea. That God didn't create the world going, you know what, my, my big dream is that we have healthy churches. That is not God's big dream. That is not the point. We don't have, but we often make ourselves the point. That the only purpose that the church has is bearing witness to the kingdom of God, which is larger than all of us. The only purpose we have is when we work for justice, not out of charity, but out of a sense of pointing to the kingdom of God that stands where justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. The only purpose we have is when we are pointing in service to something larger than just ourselves. So we've tried to do that in imperfect ways. For example, the leadership of this church has helped in some, in, in some different forums with that. At this point in the history of covenant, we have more people giving, we have more money being given to this church than at any point ever in the history of covenant. And the biggest beneficiary of that is not covenant as an organization. The biggest beneficiary of that is the neighborhoods around us and the city of Austin and the world beyond us. Our mission giving is risen 250% since 2010. That is an amazing thing. 250% since 2010. We've had people who, 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 because of the health of our church and because we're getting closer and closer to being debt-free, and that has created a level of health for us, we're able to, on top of that, do things like we saw with Hurricane Harvey when it came in, and to take an offering one Sunday and say, this was dedicated to go to the church budget. We're not going to give it to the church budget. What's now at $60,000 bypassing our own budget and just being given away on top of all the mission giving, not because we're doing great charity work, but because we are called to point to something larger than ourselves, to the people who are in such desperate need and as that story of redemption and healing in Houston and in Rockport and Port Arthur and all around the coast is being written for months to come we will have some small voice in that story being written even though the news cycles moved on to something else that is significant that we are pointing beyond ourselves we try to do that when it comes to how we care for each other through people serving as deacons, through people serving on the congregational hospital visitation team, making a huge difference as we care and seek to find people in our own community that are broken and serving them. We see that through try seeking to pray with one another. 
The Congregational Care Committee, for example, has done this really cool thing, which is on our homepage, believing that the power of prayer is real and not just waiting for people to come to us, but having an opportunity for anyone who goes on our website to offer a prayer request, not because it's just a nice thing to do, but because that is one of the ways that we believe God heals is through prayer. And I don't have it worked out like a formula, but what I can tell you is, is that years ago, my family experienced a miracle that happened because people stopped and prayed for us out of their busy day. And I, it doesn't happen to me every time I pray. It doesn't happen to us every time we pray. But this is one of the significant ways that we are called to heal and stand against unclean spirits is by uniting together in prayer. We're seeking to find ways to do that. We need our leadership to continue to push us in these directions so that more people are getting involved with opportunities to volunteer, like at Webb Middle School, like with street youth outreach, to have more and more of our time and our resources devoted to having on-ramps with our mission partners in Austin to continue to seek to give and to be of service where there is need. There's so much more for us to do. But here's the thing, and I want you to hear this today. The call to serve cannot be something we just wait for the church to figure out. It can't just be something that we wait for the leadership to figure out. We have, and I I, I say this as a part of the problem, we have one of the great troubles of our times is that we are creating a culture that is full of critics and very little else where people just post and write about saying what other people should do in power. This is what the government should be doing differently. This is what churches should be doing differently. This is what everybody should be doing differently. We are experts at telling others what they should be doing differently. This can't be something that we just wait for some people to figure out and lead us in the right direction. The call to serve doesn't start with just people who are in positions of power at a certain moment. It has to be something grassroots. It has to be something that all of us do. All of us every day, not waiting for someone to hand us the opportunity, but going and creating it and seeing it in front of us. That might mean different things for you. Some of you might be led to step into some new opportunity. Our community life guide to seek to be organized around solitude, community, and service. I hope you've looked at it. I hope if not, you look at our Facebook page and see it. It's organized there. There are opportunities where you can say, man, if I need to step more towards service, this is what I can do. And maybe that's something you're called to do, to volunteer in a new way, to get involved. I don't want to minimize that. That might be your calling today. But here's what I know your calling is today. I know this. Your call to serve is something that exists in possibility every single moment of your day. And most of the time, we never see the opportunities. I know that. There is a call to serve and seek brokenness. Like, well, where should I go volunteer to do that? You wake up. You're a part of human society. It's all around you. It's in our families. It's in our relationships. It's in our neighborhoods. It's in our schools. It's in our places of work. You don't have to go volunteer for anything to be an agent of healing and redemption and mending. You are just part of the human experience. And as part of the human experience, we encounter hurting 
every single day. And most of the time, we never even see it. And the reason we don't see it is because I'm so busy because I got to run carpool and I got to do this and I got to have this report in at this time and I got to volunteer here and I just got to go, 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 go. And I'm just so busy because I'm so crazy busy because I'm so important of how busy I am and it makes me feel like I'm worth something and I feel validated by knowing how busy I am. And we never see the chances right in front of us. Some of you have heard me mention the name Cheryl Hayner before. Some of you met Cheryl Hayner. Uh, if you've not heard of them before, Steve and Cheryl Hayner were very, very close with um, our family. We were in a small group with them for years in Atlanta before we moved out here. Right when we moved out, Steve uh, developed pancreatic cancer and died my first year here. And, and if you were here at that point, uh, that was a journey that uh, y'all got to take with me in some kind of ways as, as he passed on. And then uh, Cheryl... Uh, some of you met, she came out uh, a number of months later on a Wednesday night. She and Steve published a book called Joy in the Journey. It was about their journey through cancer. And she spoke here on a Wednesday night. And some of you have that book and have read it. One of my favorite stories about Cheryl happened from years and years and years before. When she and Steve were newly married and living in Seattle, Washington. Steve was working on staff at University Presbyterian Church as a pastor. And Cheryl was at that point vocationally full of life with two preschool children, Emily and Chip. Um, some of you have been in that stage of having multiple preschool kids at home, uh, waiting for them to start school so that you have time. That is an unbelievably chaotic time of life. Uh, a productive day is if shampoo actually hits your hair as you go through the day. It is just the definition of chaos, right? Cheryl was just trying to get through every day with these two preschoolers, and she said, you know, every day you're just trying to make it. So one of the things that she had to do with these two preschoolers is once a week, she was the primary grocery shopper for them at the time. And so she said, you know, grocery shopping was like the worst because you're there and you're trying to juggle between nap times and feeding times and when we're having a meal and when someone's going down and her own exhaustion and you get the kids in the car and they'd start fighting and they start throwing food and you're trying to remember what you're having for lunch and what someone wants for dinner and who's coming over that you're entertaining that week and what do you need and what's on coupon and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. And she said it was like the worst part uh, of having these kids was trying to do the grocery shopping. So this one day that they were in their grocery store and she's frazzled and she's going through the line and there's this one line that there's like hardly anybody uh, in line and she goes, oh, well, thank goodness uh, I'm going to go here and at least I don't have to wait in line to pay and I can just move on and move on with our day. And she said the woman at the checkout line had like the most awful presence she had ever encountered. Like this, this incredibly unfriendly person that while you're checking out, like just is not speaking and just dour and Cheryl tried to kind of talk to her and she just didn't respond. She said after they paid and her stuff was in the cart, she looked at her and she said what her manager obviously required her to, which is have a nice day. And she said, there's never been a time where someone said that phrase with less meaning, right? It's like everything about her was, I'm having an awful day and I want you to have an awful day as well. But it came out with the words, have a nice day. She said that it like put her in a bad spirit. And so she said that the next week when she went there, she saw the same situation, but she understood it this time. There were all these checkout lines with lines and there's this one thing and nobody's at it. And she's like, I got my kids and they're going nuts and I'm going crazy, but I'm waiting. I'm standing in the line because I'm not going to her again and like everything that was negative about her and whatever's going on in her life. So the manager came up, it's like, we have an empty aisle there. She's like, I know. <laughs> I appreciate that, I know. 
I'm going to sit right here. I'm choosing the line with my kids. She said as she was standing in line, she heard the voice of God say to her, Cheryl, you see that woman? Do you know that she is my beloved? Do you know that she is my beloved? She took her trolley and her kids going nuts and went to this lady's line and she said, and nothing good happened. <laughs> this is not one of those stories where I get so everything turned out great. She was like, she was mean, she was ornery, she wasn't speaking. I tried to be like, this is a God-appointed moment. Nothing really happened. I got through the line. I went home. I was feeling negative. But the next week I came back and she was there. And the next week I came back and she was there. And I just decided I'm going to keep going to her line. Over the week, she learned this woman's name. She learned just a little bit about her story. She learned that she was a single mom who had a young child and what she thought was a stable relationship that had ended, that her family didn't live nearby, that she had had to drop out of school to get what she saw as a dead-end job to try and scrape by daily to support this child, and she felt alone, and she felt sad, and she felt miserable. Cheryl said that after a certain number of months, that every week Cheryl would ask about her child and ask about her, and there was never any kind of positive sign, and finally Cheryl said, listen, what time do you get off work? Could I take you to coffee? And she said, no. I want to go to coffee with you. She's like, okay, all right. There's no, there's no pressure. I, just, I was just wondering. You know, it's just if you ever want to go to coffee, we can. Next week she goes back, goes through the line. Next week she goes back, goes, how's your child? How are you doing? How are things? Finally, several months later again, this woman looks at her. She's checking out and says, I get off at three today and I have like an hour if you want to get coffee. She said, I'm there. I'll be right outside at 3 o'clock. You come out and we'll go. She learned more about this woman and more about her journey and more about her life and more about the need for help with caring for her child so she could go back to school. And so Cheryl got her small group and people from their church to start offering free childcare. And long story short, a number of years later, this woman was able to go back to school to fit, get her degree, to get into a job that offered her more of a sense of what she wanted her life to be about and what she saw as her purpose. She was able to provide for this child. She became a Christian. She found healing in her relationship with God. She became a Sunday school teacher, a member of University Press, and then an elder of University Press. Not because Cheryl Hayner is such a special person, but because she realized in the midst of her daily life that the reason she was in that grocery store was not primarily to get food. There are opportunities to serve in a broken world every single day if we will just open our eyes and glance beyond ourselves and our to-do lists and our priorities for more than 15 seconds. And we don't do it out of rules or obligation. We do it because this is life. This is living. This is how we come alive. 
God's purposes for this world are to send you and I out into a broken world to make a difference. You are plan A. And there is no plan B. And if you hear that and think, well, it's got to be somebody else because I don't have the time and I don't have the energy and I don't have the compassion and heart and I don't have the training for how to do this and I don't have the... Then you know what it does? It brings you to your knees in solitude saying, God, I need your voice. God, I need your leading. God, I need to believe the power and authority. It takes us back to solitude and community and service, not standing independently, but all flowing together again and again. Solitude, community, service, again and again and again and again and again and as we live this way God shapes and forms us to embrace life amen amen let's pray Lord we do ask this day that you would use even us to forward your kingdom that as you came to serve with power and authority, that we would hear your call to go forward and to seek to serve as well, believing that you have given us power and authority, maybe in ways that would shock us if we stepped out in faith. Guide us this day. Help us to see with your eyes this day and this week your call upon us that we might be formed into your people. We pray for this and trust in this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one last song as we go.